Well, good morning and welcome back to our series, What's in a Name? We started this series as God identified himself to Moses simply as I am. We looked at Yahweh, Adonai, and Elohim. Lance showed us Jehovah, the everlasting God. Seth looked at Jesus as Messiah and Christ, as prophet, priest, and king. Bill Heidel introduced us to Elroy, the God who sees. You see, I knew God was country. Because with a name like Elroy, you know he's got to love country music. Elroy, the God who sees. Then we met Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. And last week, Ron reminded us that the Lord is my shepherd, Jehovah Ra, and we need to run to that shepherd. We are going to look at Jehovah as Ra, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper, or Azar, that's both the noun and the verb form of the word. When I was preparing for this message, that Beatles song was the first thing that popped into my head. And then I looked up to the lyrics and I said, what a wonderful fit. Lennon revealed that he wrote the lyrics to this song to express his stress after the Beatles' quick rise to success. He said, I was fat and depressed and I was crying out for help. So let's look at those lyrics. He says, help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Now these days are gone, I'm not so self-assured, and now I find I've changed my mind, I've opened up the door. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down, and I do appreciate you being round. Help me get my feet back on the ground, won't you please, please help me. And now my life is changed in oh so many ways. My independence seems to vanish in the haze, but every now and then I feel so insecure. I know that I just need you like I've never done before. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate you being round. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Now these days are gone. I'm not so self-assured. And now I find I've changed my mind. I've opened up the door. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate you being round. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? In his book, Robert Rosen, author of Nowhere Man, The Final Days of John Lennon, wrote, Lennon was watching Billy Graham's sermons on TV because he found them to be entertaining. He actually watched them to make fun of them. But then he had an epiphany. Apparently, Graham's words got through to him and he accepted Christ before his untimely death. The gospel, you see, it is the power of God for salvation. And then something else happened. Bob Kemp emailed Todd, Seth, and myself on Friday. And he said this, As you know, I'm involved in the Billy Graham prayer ministry. The ministry is in need of phone volunteers to take calls as the demand is great and the volunteers are few. I am asking that we play this three-minute video in church on Sunday to let the congregation know of the need and the blessing they get from serving. It is awesome to have people call and ask you about Jesus and getting saved. They can serve in their homes wherever they are. There's no commitment required except the online training. Your thoughts. Well, Bob, here are our thoughts. 
2020, people were isolated. They were fearful. A lot of people were desperate. People were lonely, and they were looking for hope. I had a man call me and say, Franklin, how about putting an ad on television, just telling people how to put their faith in Christ? We put that together and had it on TV within a few days. As millions of others have because of this coronavirus pandemic. Call that number right now that's on the screen. We've got people that like to speak with you, pray with you. We were flooded with calls. From then on, our prayer line has been open 24 hours a day. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, do it right now, just pray. We've continued running these simple gospel ads. To answer all those calls, we are in need of volunteers. My family's going through a lot right now, like and I'm, I'm being punished by cursing at home, and I feel like for a job for over a year. You're telling me I'm like chemo. This has all come, come down on me in the end. Oh, it's like I'm so wrong. Loving Heavenly Father. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who attracted me to this ministry because the ministry is focusing for souls. The love of God comes from It's convenient because it's at home. I can concentrate on the caller. And he's waiting there. Most of them are searching. Well, it says, Beloved, do not be. They just want to know they're forgiven, that Jesus loves them, that they're going to heaven when they die. It's a blessing to be used by God, but it's an even greater blessing to know that God is using my children. Three of my sons are currently serving as prayer line volunteers with me. To have a family that encourages you and keeps you accountable has truly had an impact on me. I'll do it at random hours of the day. One of my brothers does it sometimes like late at night. Just to have that opportunity that's always available is a huge blessing. In the name of Jesus, your precious people that are suffering. People are in such an urgent need. Sometimes suicidal thoughts. You are giving the best gift to them. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship the Lord in truth and in spirit. There really is an impact in this. You're really seeing souls transform from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Thank you for calling the Billy Graham prayer line. My name is Barbie. We thank God for the volunteers that serve on these prayer lines because we could not do any of this without God and the people that he provides to answer these calls. The harvest is huge, but the laborers are few, so we need more laborers. Pray that the Lord sends laborers for the harvest. Amen, and if you have further questions, you can see Bob after the service. Bob, raise your hand if you would. He's here in the front. He can share his passion for this ministry and the opportunity for you to partner with him and many others through this prayer line. God has chosen us. Don't ask me why to be his plan A. I wouldn't have done that if God, because I know who I am. I'm nobody's plan A, let me tell you. But he's chosen us to be his plan A, to spread the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray this morning and consider Jehovah Ezra, the Lord is my helper. Father, we thank you with your, for your presence with us today. We thank you that you are indeed our helper, that we can run to you as a strong tower to know that you love us, that you care for us, that we are protected in your arms, and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, as we open your word today, may we be blessed by what we see and encouraged to trust you all the more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A young woman brought her fiancé home to meet her parents. 
After dinner, her mother told her father, I like how it says told her father, <laughs> to find out more about this young man. He might not have done it on his own, who knows. And so the father invited the fiancé to his study for a talk. So what are your plans? The father asked the young man. And he said, I am a biblical scholar. A biblical scholar, hmm, the father said, admirable. But what will you do to provide a nice home for my daughter to live in? He said, I will study, and God will provide for us. And how will you buy a beautiful engagement ring such as she deserves? Asked the father. I will concentrate on my studies, the young man replied. God will provide for us. And children asked the father, how will you support the children? Don't worry, sir. God will provide, replied the fiancé. The conversation proceeded like this, and each time the father asked him, a question of him, the young idealist insisted that God would provide. Later that evening, the mother asked, How did it go, honey? As the father contemplated the conversation, he summed it up this way. He has no job and no plans, and he thinks I'm God. I'm going to provide everything for this young man. Right? Well, father-in-laws don't seem to be the answer, so where does our help come from? Well, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 121, 1 and 2, he says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Now, this is an anonymous psalm in the terms of the writer, but it isn't hard to imagine that this might have been a psalm that David would have at least have resonated with quite strongly. Now, if you read those words in the King James, as we just did, you might be a little confused. I lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. It seems like he's saying that his help comes from the hills. But of course, verse 2 says, My help comes from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Because of that confusion, later versions changed the punctuation. The NIV says it this way, I lift up my eyes to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That makes a little more clear, a little more sense, but it doesn't answer the question. Now, assuming for the sake of application this was David, why did he lift his eyes to the hills? Sometimes in scriptures, the hills represent where God dwells. Sometimes they speak of other gods. I remember growing up hearing that the, the answer was that the hills represented God's presence and his strength. But if you think about David, how he might have resonated with this psalms. I remember that he spent a lot of time in those hills, the ones to which he was lifting his eyes. What had happened in those hills for David? For years, he had hidden in those very hills from a maniacal king who was dead set on killing him. When David lifted his eyes to the hills, he didn't just see a beautiful view. He saw his life pass before him. He remembered moving from one hill to another, from one cave to another, hiding in the back of the king while the, in the cave while the king slept in the front, working his way around one side of the mountain while the king and his army marched around the other side. When David looked at those hills, he might have been tempted to remember days and nights of despair and of grief and of darkness and, and hopelessness. But I think when he looked at those hills, he saw something more. He saw protection. He saw deliverance. He saw safety in the cleft of the rock. In those hills, David knew the presence of God. 
And when David became king, he remembered that even in the darkest places, God was still there, leading him, protecting him, fulfilling the promise that he had given him, even when it seemed impossible. He wanted to remember, even as he sat on the throne, that the same Lord who had helped him when he was hiding in the hills, even in the times when he couldn't perceive God's help, would still be helping him. The English word help fails to capture the fullness of the meaning of the Hebrew expression Ezra. A lot of times we think of the English word help as meaning assistance, like, can you help me with the groceries? Can you help me with the door? Can you help me fold this fitted sheet? My wife asked me that question yesterday, and like any good husband, I proceeded to roll it into a ball and shove it in the closet. I mean, everybody knows you can't fold a fitted sheet. They don't fold. Apparently, I wasn't being helpful, and I had to do it over, and then I had to write 20 times, I will not roll the sheets. I will put them away properly. But that understanding of the word help falls far short of the meaning being made by the psalmist. In its normal form, help occurs 20 times in the Old Testament, with 13 of those occurring uh, or being references that uh, are towards Yahweh's ability to save and deliver. When combined with other words like shield, that happens in four places, the word help indicates God's divine protection over Israel in a military sense. With the imagery of Psalm 121, that same picture of God as someone who saves us from dire straits is clearly what is in mind. So when does God help us? To see the answer to that question, I can think of no better example than the well-known story of Jehoshaphat. History describes one of the greatest epic battles in the history of Israel. His story. Wait a minute, Jim. Wait a minute. Jehoshaphat who? Who'd you? Jehoshaphat what? Jehoshaphat. Was that a commentary on his weight? Are you making a fat joke? Absolutely not. Well, I never heard of him. A well-known story, you say. Where is this story? I want to see this story. Well, I'm glad you asked. It's in the well-known book of 2 Chronicles, and it comes right after 2 Chronicles? I never heard of Chronicles. I mean, I didn't even know there was a 1 Chronicles, and now you're telling me there's a sequel? Well, yes, there is, and it's where we're going to finish up today. So open your Bibles if you have them, or grab one from under the seat in front of you, and open to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now, if you start at Genesis and you hang a right, It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. There are a lot of books with sequels in the Old Testament. Chapter 20, if you prefer, or page 320, I believe you'll find it in those house Bibles, at at least some of them. So where was I? All right, the well-known story of Jehoshaphat describes one of the greatest epic battles in the history of Israel. Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, received word from a friend that the combined armies of not one, not two, but three enemy nations were on their way to fight him and conquer him. These people wanted to do him great bodily harm. You ever had one of those days when nothing goes right? Nothing goes your way? I grew up with an older brother who was always in trouble and two sisters. And we always knew when my mom was having one of those days because she would put her head in her hands, steady herself on the kitchen table and say, Lord, have mercy on my soul. She would, and we knew she was near the breaking point. You ever have days like that? 
Well, four children may not be the same as three armies, but I think the feeling scales up and down. Are you tracking with me? Have you ever noticed, maybe it's just me, that those events, those trials, those tests always seem to come after I've made some recommitment to the Lord. Things seem to be going well. I'm doing okay. I'm managing things. I got it under control. Maybe I'm beginning to see a theme here. I've, I've, I've. Yet I've committed to God. I want to serve Him. I want to be used in, in spite of my past, in spite of my bad choices. If you're tracking with me, then Jehoshaphat is the man for you. We're going to drop in on his life at just such a time. A time when he had turned his heart back to God and was trying to do all the right things. So before we jump in, let me give you a little history of what has happened up to this point in his life. Jehoshaphat was 35 when he became king of, king of Judah. That's young as I look back from 60. And the scriptures record that his heart was for the Lord. He sent teachers throughout the kingdom he, to teach the law and the fear of the Lord fell on the kingdoms around them. The surrounding nations began to bring gifts as tribute and he became quite rich. This is when trouble started. He became confident in his own power. I got all this under control. And he made alliances with the wrong people, namely Ahab. Ahab was an evil king in God's eyes. God records that he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Well, what did he, Jehoshaphat, do with Ahab? Well, it's a great story. So Jehoshaphat, he marries his son to Ahab's daughter. This is how alliances were made. It's kind of a very medieval thing if you watch movies and stuff. They went down to visit Ahab for a party, and he got sucked into a bad military alliance with him in a battle against King Aram. Well, this alliance nearly cost him his life when Ahab tried to hang him out to dry in battle. Ahab somehow convinced him that, look, it'd be a good idea if he dressed as the king and stood where everyone could see him, yet Ahab would disguise himself as a soldier. Why did Ahab do that? Well, you see, a prophet had come to Ahab earlier and told him that he was going to die in this battle. And he figured, I can outsmart God any day of the week. Didn't work. When Jehoshaphat saw everybody coming after him, he cried out to God, and God saved him. Meanwhile, a stray arrow killed Ahab, got him right between the armor plates. After the battle, when Jehoshaphat gets home, God sends him a nasty gram through the seer Jehu, letting him know how displeased he was with his behavior. Well, it must have worked because, once again, he turns his heart back to God appointing just judges in the kingdom, even went out himself turning the hearts of the people back to God. And it is sometime after this thing happens that the Chronicler tells us that three nations were coming against him to do battle. They were the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Meonites in 2 Chronicles 21. All were nearby just beyond the Jordan River. The odds were definitely not in Jehoshaphat's favor. Three against one is never a good odds, especially in a fight. But this is relevant to each of us because we all face battles each and every day, don't we? They may be financial battles or spiritual battles, marital, relational, vocational, all kinds of battles in our daily lives that may find us calling out to Jehovah, Ezra, the Lord is my helper. God put the story of Jehoshaphat in the Bible in order to illustrate certain spiritual principles for us in winning the battle of life. Paul tells us in Romans 15, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, 
so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And there are three reasons, three things I want to highlight from Jehoshaphat's story about when does God help. And number one, when we recognize we are in over our heads and turn to him. This might seem like a rather obvious answer, but actually I don't think it is. Many people simply do not recognize the enemy or know that they are under attack. Living in the world and following Jesus means we are always under attack. Peter tells us, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jehoshaphat had let his guard down and made a bad alliance with Ahab. And God was helping Jehoshaphat even when he didn't know it by protecting him from death. And God will, who is full of grace and mercy, will often do that. But he wants something more from us. He wants us to always be turning our eyes to him, to keep our eyes fixed on the author and finisher of our faith, to recognize the enemies around us, and to call out to Jehovah, our helper. When bad things happen, how we choose to respond to it is what determines the direction of our lives. Notice how Jehoshaphat reacted when he heard that three nations were coming against him. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom. Jehoshaphat, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. He was alarmed. This is a typical reaction for everyone. When we see a big problem, we panic because we're unsure of what's going to happen. What's going to happen to me? Fear begins to build. I'm starting to get afraid. This is a natural reaction to problems, and fear is not bad unless we deal with it in the wrong way. We usually begin to think of everything that we can do ourselves. Well, I gotta buy this, I gotta call so-and-so, I gotta move, I gotta do something, I gotta get out of here, anything. But the last thing we do is to pray. I've been in plenty of circumstances with others or of my own making, where after we have exhausted every option and ourselves, someone will say, sometimes it's me, well, I guess all we can do is pray. Has it come to that? Oh, is our thing so bad that all we have left is prayer? Oh my, like prayer is the last thing left in the bottom of the barrel of the bag that nobody wants. You remember picking teams in baseball or handball in elementary school? It always came down to that last kid that nobody wanted on their team. You know, that's how we treat prayer. All right, I guess you can be on my team. Just don't try to mess up. Prayer should be our defensive weapon of choice, our AR-15 when things go wrong. It should be our concealed handgun, and we don't even need a permit to carry it. Jehoshaphat recognized he was in over his head, and he turned to God. David says this in Psalm 20. He's talking about his enemies. He says, see those people polishing their chariots and those others grooming their horses? But we're making garlands for God. The chariots, they're, they're going to rust. Horses, we're going to pull up lame. We'll be here on our feet, standing tall. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. That's prayer that he's talking about. There was a church that was struggling financially. The crumbling old church build, building needed remodeling. So the preacher called a prayer meeting, and he made an impassioned appeal looking directly at the, the richest man in town. During the prayer time, the rich man stood up and announced, Pastor, I will contribute $1,000. Just then, plaster fell from the ceiling and struck the rich man 
on the shoulder. He promptly stood up again and said, Pastor, I will increase my donation to $5,000. Before he could sit back down, Plaster fell on him again, and again he virtually screamed, Pastor, I will double my last pledge. He sat down, and a large chunk of plaster fell, hitting him on the head. He stood once more and hollered, Pastor, I will give $20,000. That prompted a deacon to shout out in prayer, Hit him again, Lord, hit him again. <laughs> prayer are to be our first weapon that we use, not our last. When we turn to God for help, we will find, as David says in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. When does God help? When we wait on him. What do I mean by that? Well, let's read the text and see what happens next in the story. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nation. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territories you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat was afraid because he was facing what seemed to be hopeless odds, a hopeless situation. But he doesn't panic. He cries out to the Lord. Look at what he does. He begins, he begins to remind God of who he is. It's kind of almost comical. Lord, you're the God of our ancestors, right? You remember that, right? You're the God in heaven. You rule over the nations. Don't, don't forget that, God. Power and might, they're in your hand. Who can withstand you? Or maybe he's doing this for his own benefit to convince himself of who he has believed in, to remind him of who he is trusting our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? We will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name. And he ends in verse 12 with, what, with words that I think must have made God's ears tingle with joy. To our God, or oh our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast enemy who is attacking us. We do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. Isaiah says this. These are two of my brother's favorite verses and of mine. Isaiah 64, 4 to 5. Since before time began, no one has ever imagined, no ear has heard, no eye seen, a God like you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who happily do what is right, who keep a good memory of the way you work. Do you have a good memory of the way God works, of what he has done in your life. Do you know what he wants? If you've ever had a dog, you know that they will sit at your hand at the dining room table. 
waiting for any crumb to fall from the table or a snack you might throw their way. And if you were like me, you might have you might have faked the dog out a few times, you know, where you drop your open hands and, and there's nothing in it, and they're like, they're looking all around like, it must have been my fault, I must have missed it. And they do that a couple times, and then they realize, oh, you're messing with me, and they give you those sad eyes, like, how could you possibly do this to me, your loyal servant? God, God doesn't do that, amen? And it's a good thing. Since before time began, no one has ever imagined, no ear heard, no eye seen, a God like you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who happily do what is right, who keep a good memory of the way you work. And I don't think God minds us reminding him of who he is or remembering out loud what he's done as, and here's the key to what makes it work, as we wait for him, as we wait on him. You got to be all in with God. James says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You want to see God work, then you need to wait on his hand. Does waiting mean I am to do nothing? I can sit on the couch and kick back and become a couch potato? Absolutely not. Worship team, you can begin to make your way back up. When does God help? When we prepare for battle. One year early in our marriage, my wife rented a couple of Jane Fonda workout videos on VHS from Blockbuster Video. But when I came home, I found her sitting on the couch watching the video, eating ice cream bonbons. Now, she claims it was chips. She claims it was chips. I think it was ice cream. Either way, she was halfway through both of them. And I said, Honda, I, I don't think it works that way. I think you actually have to do the exercises with her, not just watch. She says she just wanted to make sure she wasn't going to hurt herself. I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, that's something else. Notice how God responds to Jehoshaphat's prayer. First notice in verse 13, he says, All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before their Lord, and they waited for God to answer. God's timetable is not ours. And here's how God responds. He says, verse 15, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, that's what, uh, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jerul. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. This is not about fighting God's battles in our own power, we are sure to be destroyed. The fact is that as God's child, his battles, his problems, our problems rather, are his problems. And he's much better at fighting the battles than we are. Your job is to trust him. Watch the battle on TV. Oh, thanks. They had to get ready for battle. They had to get up in the morning. They had to eat breakfast. They had to get dressed. They had to put on their armor. They had to march into battle. Even though God was going to fight the battle for them. And so do you and I. If we want to experience Jehovah Ezra, the Lord is my helper, we are called to put on the full armor of God. 
Paul says in Ephesians, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pay fellowship as we wait on the Lord, as we stand to do battle, as you see him fight for you. May you know Jehovah Ezra, the Lord is our helper, the one who can deliver and protect you. Faith Fellowship, know that God is for you, not against you. Have a good day in Jesus. We're going to end with a song.